personally, you know, even with a family background that has been tremendously affected by mental illness, I was not aware of just how common mental illness is. Welcome to Life, Love, and Family. Don't tell anybody. She's not well. You know she has head problems, schizophrenia, bipolar or something, a mental disorder. Today, we're going to talk about troubled minds. Welcome into Life, Love, and Family. Hi, this is Dr. Tim Clinton. Did you know that mental illness is the number one cause of disability in North America? According to the National Institute for Mental Health and other experts, one in four adults, that's a little more than 25% of Americans age 18 and older, suffer from a diagnosable mental disorder. About 12 million people in the United States have a serious or chronic mental illness like major depression or schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Yes, mental disorders affect Christians and our families, people we love. Our special guest today to talk about this difficult but very significant topic is Amy Simpson. She's formerly the vice president of Church Ministry Media Group at Christianity Today. Amy is currently the editor of giftedforleadership.com and the managing editor of Marriage and Parenting Resources for Today's Christian Woman. She's the author of Into the Word, How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible. She's got a personal story that you want to hear. Amy, welcome in to Life, Love, and Family. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today, Tim, and to um, talk about this, like you said, really important topic with your listeners. This is a difficult subject to talk about, but when you start looking at the statistics— we're talking about something that's very substantive, very real, prominent in our modern day life. Tell us what you found as you began to research out mental illness, mental disorders. Some of the statistics that you already mentioned, I think most people are largely unaware of. And personally, you know, even with a family background that has been tremendously affected by mental illness, I was not aware of just how common mental illness is. So when I started doing research and discovering that about one in four of American adults are affected by mental illness, that about one in five children are affected in some way, I did the math and actually realized that mental illness is more common than diabetes, heart disease, cancer, HIV, and AIDS combined in the United States. And those are illnesses that we talk about all the time, that we you know, are not afraid to acknowledge affect Christians, and yet mental illness goes largely unmentioned in a lot of places, including in a lot of churches. It's like this big secret. Yeah, that's right. Nobody wants to talk about it. But is it real? That silence reinforces the idea that it's rare, that if you are affected by mental illness, you're alone. There's no one else around you who will understand. And that's just not true. 
Amy, part of how you anchored your new book called Troubled Minds, subtitled Mental Illness and the Church's Mission, is built around the story of your mother. And if you wouldn't mind just telling us about mom. Start us out, what it was like just being a little girl and who your mom was and then what started to happen. When I was growing up, my mom suffered from symptoms of mental illness, but nobody around her identified that that was what was going on with her. We didn't understand that she had a mental illness. You know, and when I was young, I thought my family was pretty normal. In our early days, our family defines normal for us. So growing up, you know, my mom was socially withdrawn. She had a hard time making decisions. Sometimes she would spend a lot of time by herself, isolated even from her kids. I have three siblings, so there were four of us. My dad had to do a lot of kind of propping up our family life and making sure that things got done and that mom was on task because she'd sometimes just have a hard time even following through on those most basic tasks. But she functioned well enough, like I said, that no one recognized that she had a mental illness. She just didn't always seem as productive as she should or social as most people would be or as with it as she was at other times. So we got along okay that way. My dad was a pastor. He was a pastor at small churches, so he was in the kind of churches where he was the only staff person and the pastor really did everything. So my dad was a very a busy guy and in demand from other people who needed his attention and his care, and at the same time his, his wife, my mom, demanded a lot from him as well. Your dad was like my dad. Uh, my dad was a rural country pastor. And so a lot of the stories you talked about, I mean, swimming in the creek and things like that, that's how I grew up, Amy. But this story begins to unfold and it gets pretty serious. When I was 13, my family, my dad left the pastoral position he was in, and my family moved from this country setting into the city, largely because it was a place where my dad was more likely to find work. We resettled there right before a new school year began, and this was a stressful transition for our entire family. My brother, who was the oldest sibling in our family, had just graduated from high school, and he left home, which was obviously a major transition. My older sister was a senior in high school, so she was starting her senior year of high school in a brand new place, in a brand new school, in a very different setting from what she was used to. And my um, younger sister and I were suddenly taken from this place where we'd been in this tiny little school with um, you know, everybody we knew and now found ourselves in this big junior high school with all these people we didn't know. So this was a major transition for all of us, and we were suffering from culture shock and the pains of transition and the stresses that come with that kind of change in life. And then at the same time, my dad was unemployed and for a long time couldn't find work. And when he did find work, it was in temporary jobs or low-wage jobs. So we were living on public assistance and really suffering the effects of poverty as well. For the rest of my family, it eventually we adjusted to this new life and we found our way over and through the bumps in the road. But for my mom, this time of stress was just too much for her, and she was not able to make those adjustments. Her mental health was already so fragile that this challenge um, really caused her to disintegrate and to grow even less healthy than she was and less able to handle even those everyday demands of life. My siblings and I saw this happening, my sisters and I in particular, because we were living at home at the time, we got really concerned about mom. We could tell she was growing much worse. And so we talked to my dad and we said, you know, we're really concerned about mom. She needs some kind of help. And my dad 
didn't know what to do and was very much um, challenged in terms of resources, but was able to find a counselor for my mom to talk to. I think he saw her pro bono. And so she went and talked to him a, a few times. But I think that counselor himself was in over his, his head and didn't recognize just how serious the situation was. Amy, did she get some type of diagnosis or anything along the way here? At that point, she had not received any kind of diagnosis. And I think that her visits to this counselor was the first time she had had any kind of official mental health care. Okay. The counselor thought she was suffering from depression, but didn't understand that she had a lot more going on than that. And she was able to hide the degree to which she was affected by her mental illness. She was able to hide that pretty well at that point, even though she was having trouble even with the most basic of daily tasks. It wasn't apparent that she was actually suffering from psychosis. So I was 14 years old, and one day I was after school, actually, I was on the track team, and I had finished track practice. My dad would usually pick me up on his way home from work, and he didn't show up that day. I found a payphone, which we still had in those days, and I called home, and a neighbor answered the phone. She told me, something happened to your mom. I think she had a stroke or something, and they took her to the hospital. So I walked home, and as I was walking home, I remember very clearly being very afraid of what was happening, and the word stroke kept running through my mind. Um, and I was trying to figure out what the stroke, I was trying to remember what its stroke even was, because no one really close to me had, had had a stroke, and I didn't really know what that meant. So I was trying to determine, you know, is that something that my mom might have died from, or have I lost her? How would that have affected her? And when I got home and eventually learned what had actually happened, I didn't realize at the time, but I eventually did realize that at that point I had lost my mom, but I had not lost her in the way I was afraid of. I hadn't lost her to death. I had lost her to schizophrenia, and that's what she was eventually diagnosed with. But at that time, it was very confusing and very unclear exactly what had happened. All we knew was that she had completely lost her ability to function and completely lost touch with reality, and she had been taken to the hospital. She was hospitalized for a while, and that really started my family's journey with mental illness that was obvious and, you know, no longer something that my mom could effectively hide all the time, no longer something that we could really hide from either. We're still dealing with it to this day. Decades later, it's really affected our family. Amy, there was repeated hospitalization, scary situations at times that would throw you as a family. Let's shift from mom for a moment to a little girl named Amy. What starts happening in the heart and mind of a young girl when a caretaker, a mom, is gone, basically? And what starts happening to a family? It's a great question and something that I can describe now and at the time probably could not have described because it was very hard to understand what was happening to my family and to myself. There was a lot of confusion, and I think this situation would have been a little bit easier to deal with in some ways if we had understood what was happening, but I really did not understand, and it took a long time for us to understand. You know, I think just naturally when we feel this deep sense of insecurity and fear about what's happening within our families, we go into this natural sort of self-protection mode. That's what each individual in my family did. You know, we cared about each other and we, we were looking out for each other, but we didn't go to one another to support one another. We did what we needed to kind of care for ourselves, and it had the effect of creating some distance between us. 
So for me personally, what I ended up doing was a couple of things, trying to fix my mom, because I thought if I could just love her well enough and sacrifice enough for her and assure her enough that she didn't need to be so afraid, that she wouldn't be, you know, that she would trust me and that she would get better. Another thing that ended up happening was I gained this ability to sort of be one person at home and one person when I left home. I think that was my way of trying to cope and it was my way of trying to be a normal teenager at school and with my friends and in the the marching band and on the track team and you know all of the things that I was involved in working you know a part-time job trying to be a normal teenager in those contexts and function well and be as healthy and growing up well as I could be so I tried not to carry the baggage from home when I walked out the door but when I walked back in through the door and I was at home then I carried that baggage in the short term, that may have been helpful for me. It was not a healthy way for me to function long term. It had the effect, too, of teaching me to shut down my emotions, which for a while helped me to not experience a lot of the negative emotions that I faced. I didn't always feel scared or angry because I was able to kind of shut those things off. But eventually, I kind of lost the ability to feel anything even those positive emotions. Amy, here's this issue. It's like screaming at you. It's screaming throughout the family, but also there's this deafening silence over everything. We struggle to talk about it, even the people around us who want to embrace us. And so we kind of push through it and say, "Ah, everything's fine, and we just do our thing, don't we? Yeah, that's right. And there is this environment of silence around the idea of mental illness. And you add to that the lack of understanding of even what's happening with you, you know, even what's happening within your family. And it's hard to ask for help when you don't know what's going on or what you need. And it's even harder to ask for help when you you feel ashamed of what's happening and you feel afraid that people will reject you when they understand how much you need or why you need help. You know, when you're experiencing a serious mental illness in your family, There's a lot of shame that comes with that Mm -hmm. because of that stigma around mental illness. You know, Amy, they say the mind can be a very beautiful, magnificent place, and the mind can also be a very dark, turbulent place. As I was reading the story and as I'm listening to you, there was that one place where your mother began to dabble, if you will, uh, on the dark side. And this thing gets even more progressively crazy. Amy, talk to us now about God and this journey for a moment. You guys are people who believe. Yeah. How do you reconcile this? Because there are people out there listening or saying, listen, we have some of this in our family and we're battling with all this with God because when it comes to mental disorders, people start thinking, okay, that's just something that you should be able to just to get over as a Christian. Yeah. And we slam the door on a lot of this and nobody wants to have this conversation. Yeah, that's right. My family is a great example of how mental illness, even very serious mental illness, can and does happen to faithful followers of Christ. So when people claim that it doesn't or it can't, you know, or that you should just be able to get over it, I have a pretty strong reaction against that, partly because I just know that it's not true and partly because my own experience and my own family's experience is really um, insulted by that point of view. My parents both are strong, faithful Christians. They have served Christ their entire lives. My siblings and I are also all strong, faithful Christians. We all became Christians when we were small children, and we have all walked faithfully with Christ 
ever since then, and that's despite the challenges that we've faced here and some of the ways that, that the church has failed to kind of meet our needs around this area. We have continued to follow Christ. We've done that through some pretty dark times and some significant challenges. And this experience, I'll, I'll be honest, my mom's illness has served as the greatest challenge to my personal faith. But it's also been the biggest opportunity in my life for God to show himself faithful and for me to see his grace and to see his grace just very actively at work in the way he redeems these terrible stories. You mentioned my mom did walk away from her faith for a time. And this was not because she decided she didn't want to believe anymore or because she somehow chose to be mentally ill and to have this you know, alternative point of view. She was battling. That's right. And she was suffering from delusions. And those delusions, like wow. many people, mm-hmm. took on a, a spiritual nature. Uh, she believed that she was receiving special messages when she was sitting in church listening to the pastor's sermon. And those messages led her to explore on alternative spirituality. And when she did that, she found people who were more than willing to help her down that path and to embrace the occult. And she did embrace the occult for a time very seriously and very deeply. This was obviously really troubling to my family. Scary. Very scary. And we spoke up to her about it. This did not go unchallenged in my family. But most of all, we prayed really hard for my mom through that time. And eventually, she came back around. And you know, you know when people talk about mental illness being caused by demon possession and you can just pray it out of somebody, you know, just cast out the demon or whatever. At that point in my mom's life, I think there were a lot of people who probably would have taken that point of view, but I'll tell you what helped her to get back on the right path spiritually and to come back to uh, her Christian faith and embrace her relationship with Christ was faithfully taking her medication. Those medications that some churches say, you know, you don't need, you just need to be faithful in your relationship with Christ. Those medications can be literally life-saving for people and can help clear the road, as it were, of those obstacles that keep us from pursuing our relationship with Christ. And that was certainly the case with my mom. When the cobwebs started to clear, uh, she realized that she was on the wrong path and that she had walked away from the faith that for her was still very real and very true, the Savior that she still believed in. But she walked down that other path really as an expression of her illness. And I'm very happy to say that she's back and she's following Christ faithfully um, today. And so that's just one way that we have seen that redemption at work in our family and in my mom's life. And I recognize that's not the case with everybody who's listening. They may not have seen that kind of specific turnaround, but I can say that it's real and that it happens and that I've seen it. Amy, there are so many potential causes for a variety of mental disorders and then treatment strategies. We talk now about biblically-based, empirically-supported treatments, what works best for what client with what disorder and under what given circumstances or situations. That's a whole other show, but I want to stay with the theme of where we are here with you. And that is, in cases like your mom, though, what happens is because we don't know how to work our way through it, because people around us don't necessarily know how to talk or think their way through it, 
uh, we strip people like your mom of their voice and we leave them alone. It's like you place them over in a corner somewhere and think, okay, we'll close our eyes and just for one extra second and hopefully it'll all go away. But it never goes away. Amy, you did some research with Christian leaders. You were surveying them about mental disorders. Can you share some of the results of what you found? Yeah, when I did this survey, and by the way, I got 500 responses. So we had a pretty good sample size of uh, church leaders who responded to this survey. 98% of them said they had seen some type of mental illness in their congregation. So virtually all of these church leaders are aware that mental illness exists and not only exists, but exists within their own church. But only 12.5% of them said that mental illness is discussed in an open and healthy way in their church. There's a huge gap between awareness and response and having that healthy response that you know allows us to talk about it rather than like you said sort of close our eyes and pretend it's not there most church leaders who responded to our survey 80 percent of them believed mental illness is a real treatable and manageable illness caused by genetic biological or environmental factors so there was a fairly high percentage of church leaders who had a kind of a healthy approach to mental illness and what they said they believed but that leaves another 20% who don't believe that, who, ha- who believe something else about mental illness. And in that question, we allowed people to mark more than one answer, too, in terms of what they believed about mental illness. So although 80% of them said it was real, treatable, manageable illness, another 29% of them also said it's a behavioral problem caused by a person's bad choices. And 20% of church leaders said that they believed mental illness is caused by demon possession, demonic influence. of them said mental illness is a spiritual problem that needs to be treated spiritually. So there are some misconceptions out there among church leaders, and those misconceptions are not harmless. They do harm. They perpetuate the sense of alienation among people who have mental illness and the people who love them. They discourage people from receiving treatment. And in some cases, they may effectively shut down a person's chances at productive life and ministry. Absolutely. You know, we keep people marginalized and refuse to allow them really to be restored and renewed and to get back on a path that's going to help them fulfill their purpose in Christ. Amy, I know you have a real passion about the role of the church and mental illness and about professional treatment. Can you share some of that as we begin to wind down the program here? The approach to mental illness is not simple. When you kind of throw... 25% of the population in the mix, it's really not simple. It's not an exact science. It's got a very um, subjective element to it. So I don't want to suggest that I think there's a one-size-fits-all option or that mental illness is simple and we just, you know, love people and they'll get better and, and we'll all be good. But churches tend to make one mistake or the other. A lot of churches either respond to to mental illness by referring people out to professionals and kind of wash their hands and figure their job has been done. And then a lot of churches kind of take the opposite approach and say, we don't need professionals to intervene. We have God, so why do we need these people who are, you know, professional counselors and psychologists? We can handle everything here. We're Christians, and we have the Holy Spirit, and so we should be able to help one another get better. Or there's a spiritual matter, so if this person just prays more, has more faith, or gets rid of a demon in their life, then they'll be fine. And both of those approaches, I think, are wrong. The, the right approach for the church is somewhere between the two. 
there is a role for professionals to play, just like there is with any other medical problem, there's also a role for the church to play. Those mental health professionals are not going to fulfill that role. You know, your counselor, your mental health hospital, your psychiatrist, they are not committed to providing spiritual care that you need, to answering all of your spiritual questions, and they're not committed to providing that ongoing loving community. And those are things that the church not only can do, but is actually good at and is called to do. The most basic thing that the church needs to do, honestly, is just to be the church. It's to be the body of believers that we are called to be. And when we decide that we're all in this together, and that, as Paul writes, when one member suffers, everyone suffers, then we can't sit around and do nothing when someone in our body is suffering. Amy, I want to close this way, and I'm going to give you the final word here. What have you learned about God through this whole process? I have learned that God does not abandon us. That might sound like a very simple lesson to take from an experience like this, but when you're in the middle of this kind of suffering, I wondered, you know, has God walked away from us? Has God no longer love us because, you know, why is my good Christian family suffering this way? This isn't what we signed up for. This isn't what we should have. But my logic was faulty. It was based on an assumption that God owes us something. You know, we follow him. He owes us an easy life. Or, you know, we're Christians. We shouldn't have any serious suffering in this world. And that's simply not true. When you can get past that faulty kind of thinking and understand that this kind of suffering is just part of reality in the world we live in and recognize all the ways that God has walked alongside you in your suffering, it completely changes your point of view. Jesus people out there wrestling with a, an issue, a mental disorder. And you know what? You're not alone. There's hope. God is raising up a generation of people who dare to care, who want to be sensitive and understand the issues that people are wrestling with, and who also, by the way, want to champion the love and grace and hope that we have in Jesus Christ. People who are Christians, who want to be counselors, who stand in the gap. Get a copy of Amy Simpson's new book called Troubled Minds, Mental Illness and the Church's Mission. Read that story. If you're going through this journey alone, it'll remind you of God's faithfulness in your life. And then let me say something to you. If God's called you to stand in the gap and he wants to work in and through you to touch the lives of others, would you consider Light University? We've built programs to help you take the Word of God and this understanding of brokenness and reach out into the lives of people. Over 200,000 people have now enrolled in Light University's Certificate and Diploma programs on Biblical Counseling, led by some of the leading experts in the world. You'll go through a classroom experience, learning the Word of God, learning about these issues, and becoming salt and light. You can learn more about that on our website at lifeloveandfamily.net. That's lifeloveandfamily.net. Or you can call us toll-free at 855-455-3264. Thanks for listening. Life, Love, and Family.
You know the feeling where you're tired and unmotivated and sometimes you get mad for no reason. And maybe you don't like what it's doing to your family or to your job. That's why the Center for Counseling and Health Resources has been there for people for more than 30 years. They take a whole person care approach that'll look at everything from your nutrition, your vitamin balances, your mind, your spirit. Call 1-888-771-5166. Or for help right now, visit aplaceofhope.com. America's number one Christian residential treatment program, Honey Lake Clinic, specializing in addiction, depression, anxiety, bipolar, PTSD, staffed by nationally recognized psychiatrists and psychologists, a team of MDs and 24-hour nursing care, a 600-acre scenic sanctuary of unmatched beauty, Honey Lake Clinic, most insurance accepted, scholarships available, phone 844-747-7772, online, honeylake.clinic.